This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're talking all about art as a factor in mental health with incredible artist Stuart Semple. And I've got a lot of things to say about him, but before we talk more about our guest, I've got some background information from a Guardian article called It's Time to Recognise the Contribution Arts Can Make to Health and Wellbeing. And this was written back in 2017, but can you hear the wind now? I thought it was my wind. I can hear my wind. I don't know if it's your wind. We've all got wind. We've all got wind and we'll press on. Yeah, what was I saying? article by The Guardian, I'd recommend the listeners seek it out to read in full, but basically it has some really good statistics and talks about an organisation that that you'd heard of and potentially a family friend of yours has even been a part. And so I'll read a bit of that now. Arts and Minds, a leading arts and mental health charity, has been running weekly art workshops for people experiencing depression, stress or anxiety in Cambridge for the past seven years. So I guess 10 years now. Led by an artist and counsellor, its Art on Prescription project offers a chance to work with a range of materials and techniques, including printmaking and sculpture. The impact has been outstanding. An evaluation revealed a 71% decrease in feelings of anxiety and a 73% fall in depression. 76% of participants said their well-being increased and 69% felt more socially included. Gavin Clayton, who's the executive director of the charity and one of the founders of the National Alliance for Arts, Health and Wellbeing, said, Our evidence shows that taking part in creative activities has a positive impact on people's mental health. The arts are important for wellbeing because beauty has a role in our lives. If we don't listen to that or pay attention, that can cause problems. And that's as far as I'll read, but there's more about politics and all sorts of other elements to that article to check out but I thought that was a really good bit to summarize a specific example with stats of how much art can make a difference to people. I mean those stats I mean I'm not surprised I knew they'd be high but they're really high in terms of the positive benefits 71% decrease in feelings of anxiety and I get that because I feel the same but that's that's a lot still the figures are great I think that is absolutely amazing and I just love it I mean I wish I did more kind of sculpture art maybe a bit more challenging like I'm I'm not a challenged artist let's say I like art that's quite easy that I can just do a bit of painting and colouring and that's only really since I've had children I reckon and seeing how it's just so relaxing and just really enjoy it but I don't know yeah I'd love to go to like a class and do more. But I think the message is clear that you don't need to go to a class and do more and be challenged in sculpting or you can literally, like I've asked for colouring books for Christmas, but I can literally sit in my house and my mood doesn't matter on the mood if I just want to get out and do a bit of sketching or colouring or and enjoy all the colours and the paints that you can get. We were talking off air about like glitter paint and you just wouldn't believe it if you're like an adult that hasn't engaged with like art supplies what since school what you can actually get hold of now like it's really like it's amazing I think you go into an art shop it's so cool so yeah I'm I'm not surprised I think it's brilliant I'm excited for this episode yeah and you've reminded me of I'm, I'm trying to remember if this is the correct term for them is it spirographs do you remember those sort of cogs yes. plastic cogs yeah. that went around in a wheel they they were real cutting edge <laughs> back, back in my time <laughs> they were very exciting and I, I saw like on it's a craze now on TikTok because I don't have TikTok but it's leaking onto Instagram and so loads of people are making videos with them and I'm like I, really? yeah so it's kind of coming back round because they are sort of mesmerizing to even watch somebody else use one yes my, Ella's got one my daughter got one for a birthday like last year and she's done it a few times I mean you've got it and it's one of those things isn't it you know when like it catches on the paper you you're off amazing but I always used to find that like the one bit never quite would go right and I'd always be like oh I'm not patient not patient enough for this when you do get it and you start going with it 
really is amazing. You're right, mesmerising is the word and what a great distraction that can be really from thoughts, which we know are what lead us down kind of paths that we don't always want to go down, really. And I think a lot of this is the case for art, that it can just be very mindful in a really organic way. And you were saying off air how being around your kids and just seeing how they kind of yearn to create and how they just really naturally go for it in a way that sometimes, you know, I think as adults we forget how to play and we forget how to just explore our abilities. It's very easy to get into a mindset of like achievement and perfectionism. 100% and there's a TED talk that I'm frantically trying to research while we're on air here we go Ken so Ken Robinson and the question the hypothesis that he puts out there for his TED talk is do schools kill creativity and it's absolutely amazing it's been watched by millions worth watching he got called back to do more he's a British guy and it's so funny as well like I recommend anyone to watch it because some of his jokes you can tell his American audience they laugh but they're not quite getting all of them but the, the Brit American thing also but he's so funny in it but he's a professor and he just talks about you know literally as what you've just said we are kids are born to dance on the playground, to run on the playground and to draw and to make things. That's all we seem to want to do. And we get older and we it just all declines and declines and we stop and it just doesn't feel then natural. And it's amazing because actually, and you know, it speak, he speaks really openly and I, I love this, especially coming from an academic, that why across every single curriculum across the world are, you know, maths and English at the top and arts at the bottom of the the amount of time that it's studied within schools or academic like settings why is that and then even within the arts there's a hierarchy there as well what comes first within the arts you know I just think that's how you know when you think about our mental health it's so interesting going back to that and especially working with young people experiencing poor mental health and understanding what it must you know what it's like like I do you know and helping young people in that way it's you know, it makes you just think how so much of it stems from pressures of school and being at school or not wanting to be at school and not enjoying school and school being boring. And, you know, Ella will say to me, Mum, oh, I've got maths. And I'll go, I have to say to Ella, you know, you've got another 10 years of it. You've, you might as well adjust. She's good at it. But it, who's what, what kid wants? She doesn't want to go. Not what kid, because some kids do. But my kid does not want to go and sit in a classroom every single day, Bob, for two hours. They do maths. But they do PE for 45 minutes a week. They do music for 45 minutes a week. They do art for 45 minutes a week, but they do maths for two hours a day. Do you know what I mean? It's When you think about it, it's heavy, really, really heavy. So, yeah, I think we have a lot. I think if we can get them, to our children, and even us as adults, to be more creative when we come home, if we're on, you know, not lucky enough to be in jobs, you know, that are creative, like I we are some of my work isn't necessarily but some of it is you know the podcast is amazing to be part of but it's really time to I think dig in and pull out your creative side do what you can yeah and I know we've really found it helpful during challenging times ourselves that we've had this space and this platform to talk things through and to explore with guests and to and do all the kind of behind the scenes creative elements of of making the show yeah. and editing and researching and you know how lovely it is to have basically conversations and connecting with people be our medium of creativity but I think mm. broadly that kind of is art and the guest this week Stuart Semple very much shares how that was a big part of his mental health journey was this yearning to create and externalize experiences and feelings that were very challenging and in doing so he was so pleasantly surprised how much people connected with that he got that in terms of the artwork he was creating we get that in terms of the podcast and having these conversations and then being like oh these experiences that were so personal can actually have quite Mm. universal relatability and so I'm really glad to share this conversation with him where we talk about art as a factor in mental health in such a broad way because so much of it is the bits that are sort of difficult to measure. You know, the connecting with others, how art makes us feel and how feeling is good and important to embrace, how, you know, how to work on your craft means a lot of collaboration with others. 
often means like classes and the social side and all these elements make such a difference. And so we absolutely love art therapy and that can be an additional layer. But actually, whatever ways you can find to express your creativity can make such a difference. Yeah, Bob, I totally agree because, again, when we think about lockdown, 18 months, nearly two years, everybody made something. Most people, they went to creativity, whether they were making a garden, making a bedroom, making a cake, making bread, making music, making art. Like everybody's kind of went to, everybody felt, it seemed, society, the world that they wanted to make and share what they'd made, which is essentially what our guest is talking about and what we're talking about. So how powerful that is. And I wonder how many of those people haven't since being back to work or since coming out of lockdown haven't have stopped making you know yeah and I think even I would say everybody because everybody went to art in some way so even if you weren't creating it yourself you were maybe watching more tv or you were watching like the the recording of Hamilton that was on Disney plus and how many people saw that you know there were all these ways in which we embraced creativity more And it's interesting when we struggle, that is so often what we go to. You know, we go to music, we go to films, we go to drawing, all these elements where creativity thrives. We don't necessarily go to a textbook all the time. You know, we we embrace art so often to kind of make sense of complex situations in a way that it often does make more sense. You know, the scientific side can be so incredible, but sometimes we do feel a bit wishy-washy in ourselves and we feel a bit difficult to define. And sometimes art is the way to express and explore that. And you're very much here with the guest's experience as well, how it's been just such an outlet to him in so many ways and also a way to kind of find so much connection with others, including... And I did, I did mention it to him off air. I was an early supporter of his creation of a particular paint. I'm not going to say too much about it because we talk about it in the episode. But he really strives to make art materials accessible for as many people as possible so we can all find how creativity can positively impact our lives and, you know, getting those materials to people so they can be their most creative selves. And I was one of the people that supported a, a very important project as part of that, which we'll talk about in the episode. And so, yeah, wonderful guest to like talk about the depths of art and the depths of this relationship with mental health. And yeah, one, I think very close to home for both of us. Mm. So with that all said, we'll get into the episode with the brilliant Stuart Semple in a moment. But first... Who's our sponsor? Let's find out. Every dog is unique. That's why at Tails.com, every dog gets a tasty recipe that's made just for them. So whatever the breed, age or lifestyle of your pooch, they'll thank you for trying a new dog food that is made with high quality ingredients and the exact nutrients they need to live their best life. So once you've filled out the online questionnaire, the Tails.com team get to work creating complete nutrition that is delivered to your door. You can even set up scheduled deliveries so that you never run out. As someone who regularly orders pet food online, that really appeals. And their food is even packaged with your doggo's name on the front. Handy for telling it apart if you've got more than one to keep happy and fed. Yeah, I love that side of it. My mum was so excited when it came through and it had Winnie's name on. I think it's so cool. (laughs) Uh, Regardless whether you've got another dog or pet that you want to separate or distinguish from. Um, There are also options to have the food delivered to sensitive stomachs and all the recipes work to improve digestion, coat health, teeth, joints and more. So if you want to give it a try for yourself, uh, really for your dog, visit tails.com slash health 21. Tell them all about your dog and get one month's free tailored dog food delivered to your door. You only pay £2 delivery and there is no commitment. Instead, you just let the dogs decide and get to look out for the positive health impact. Yeah. This week, I got to try a monthly wine discovery club called Wine 52 that is so sure of the quality of their product, you can try it for free. 
So basically, this box arrives at my door and I just had no idea what it is. And I opened it and I just loved this, like, it was three bottles of wine in a really, like, efficient box. Mm -hmm. That's what I loved, actually, as well. (laughs) The fact that there was no, like, extra waste, you know, and packaging that's just unnecessary. Really nice, like, thin rectangle box that just fit three beautiful bottles of wine. And it was such a pleasant surprise. I had a bottle of red and two bottles of white organic wine. And I thought, I'll save these for Christmas. What a treat. (laughs) Red's already gone. And as you can tell, I've got a bit of a cold. (laughs) And um, so I haven't been drinking wine at all. And when it came, it was like, how can I just not try it? You know, I'm the response. I'm going to do an ad on the podcast and I've got to try it. Of course, I've got to try it. Well, the red was absolutely beautiful. So Wine 52 is a wine club with a difference. Instead of stocking thousands of wines from hundreds of producers, Wine 52 only selects the very best of the best. The expert wine tasters search out the most exciting wine regions and top undiscovered winemakers in the world and bring them straight to your door. Imagine just sitting reading about the region of the wine comes from and really enjoyed it, the look of it, the feel. Honestly, everything was really, it was a really nice experience, actually, the whole receiving it, the delivery of it and everything. And I think this sounds really cool as even someone that doesn't drink, I can appreciate how it sounds quite mindful of experiencing wine in this way and getting to learn about the background of it and have somebody that knows what they're doing choose it out for you. You know, I have a a mixture of people in my life who either really know about wine or really do not. And I think this would appeal to probably all of them. To try a box yourself, use our exclusive link, wine52.com forward slash mental. So that's wine, the number five and two dot com slash mental. All you pay is the postage of £5.95. I'm Stuart Semple and my first experience of anything relating to mental health really was when I was a young child, I must have been maybe nine or ten, and my uncle developed schizophrenia quite suddenly and had a massive impact on my whole family, my mum, my cousins, and it was the first time I sort of saw how society almost outcast someone who was struggling like that, and it made a huge impact on me, and I remember making a lot of art about it writing poems and and drawings and everything to try and kind of understand what he must have been going through. Mm -hmm. And at that young age, what was your concept of what he was experiencing and how much were you told? I was told very little and it was almost like everybody kept him at arm's length and nobody really knew what to do. And he was like a father, a, a male who was sort of, you know, falling apart in a lot of ways. And I didn't really understand it. And I think my perception of it was really sort of coloured. I was really into Pink Floyd and I used to watch the movie The Wall and there's someone who's sort of going through similar things in The Wall. And I made a lot of drawings and sort of paintings around that. And in a lot of ways, it was almost sort of glamorised because I saw a media view of it rather than the reality of it, if you like. Yeah, and it can be such a contrast then when we see it in our own life. This thing that I think we're also encouraged to think particular conditions are so far away from us that they don't happen to most people. And Mm. then that can be such a shock when somebody struggles to such an extent in your own family. Yeah, and I think, you know, what are we going back, 30 years, you know, it was a completely different world then. And it really was sort of frowned upon. It was like it was a a really bad thing. Like, you you know, the the assumption was that he was a bad person because this had happened. And uh, there's this strange sort of, at least in my mind, sort of, it was almost exotic that someone was having these experiences. Like it was so, you know, it sounds weird to talk about it in that way, but it felt like it was very other and almost sort of alluring in a way, which is kind of creepy and weird. Yes. And yeah, I think sometimes we're encouraged to view mental ill health in that way, that it's something to be sort of looked in on, like it's some sort of curiosity. And I guess in many ways, over the years that has been how it's treated and you know still today I so often see articles of such and such a celebrity comes out about their mental health and I can see that and be like but they talk about that all the time but it's still treated like this sort of 
that you you could be an advocate for it, but it's still something that you're opening up about that is something that the assumption is you wouldn't. Yeah, I think so. But I think the other thing is, like, from a sort of cultural point of view, you know, like with artists and rock stars and musicians, it kind of, in some ways, made them special. They were able to articulate these extraordinary worlds and make this fantastic work because of the struggles that they'd been through. And in, in that way, it sort of made those things seem kind of fascinating that they could see the world in a in a unique way maybe for sure absolutely and I think we are encouraged to view artists in that way to have this mentality that the struggle is part of the art and that you are somehow creative because of these difficulties as opposed to you are creative even with these things going on absolutely yeah yeah and so do you mind sharing a bit about where symptoms first came up in terms of your own mental health? I don't really know when it really started because I was very sort of isolated as a kid. I'd spent a lot of time in my room like drawing and painting and and I guess things were starting to develop in terms of like some sort of anxiety or nervousness around people kind of early on but I didn't really put my finger on that that's what it was called you know and then I went to university I moved away from home very far away I went to the Yorkshire Sculpture Park to study art and I'm from Bournemouth so it couldn't be further and I became very homesick and I started to have what I now know are panic attacks but at the time I didn't really know what that was even called or what was going on but I would find myself in my dorm room on my own like literally shaking thinking I was going to die and calling the ambulance out, like, this was a heart attack, what's going on? And this went on for quite a while, and I never really knew it It, it was, you know, a sort of panic disorder at the time, you know, I understand now. And then when I was about six months into that experience of university, I had a near-death experience from an allergy, and I flatlined and, and I died, and that kind of tipped it over the edge, and it's then it kind of, well, it just took over, and I ended up, in quite a bad way for a long time after that but I think the foundation of it had been there for a lot longer before it kind of reached that sort of level maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No that makes sense that you had a lot of these existing experiences relating to anxiety and then you have this incident happen which would seemingly confirm a lot of those worst case fears well here's you actually dying as a teenager and you survived Mm. it but were those thoughts then swirling and telling you it's going to happen again? Yeah, definitely. Because, see, the thing is, like, it's not an irrational fear because I have 52 allergies and they can't tell me which of the allergies could kill me. So I could feasibly touch a cup that someone had drunk out of who'd eaten a nut and I could die. So there's no, it's not like there's no basis in the, in, in the phobia, right? which is why it's so difficult to deal with because my my psychology wants to keep me alive and there's a genuine threat. But of course, the level it went to is like a full-blown sort of health anxiety, which I still live with, you know, and it's still with me all these years later. So it's a difficult one. And what was the initial aftermath of that experience, like trying to come to terms with what had happened to you, how suddenly it had happened and then not knowing perhaps what might have caused it even? Well, it was just really strange. Obviously, I I, I quit college and I just kind of started making art as a way to cope. And I made like three pictures a day and I just put them on the internet, not to make money or anything, but just to share. They were kind of like a diary and it became a way to cope, a bit of a lifeline really. So I started doing that and my art changed drastically and I didn't really get any help. You know, it was really strange because, like, the hospital sent me out. Here's a young guy, teenager, died. You know, there's no psychological support, nobody asking if I was okay, nobody realised I went down to, like, six stone. Like, it was weird. And I think, you know, I've got to say, I think it's because I was a bloke and I was young and I looked fine and there was just nothing there for me and there was no one I could talk to. No one even used words like panic disorder, anxiety, health anxiety. No one was talking about that. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know those words. I just thought I was ill because I couldn't swallow, because I couldn't breathe. I thought that I had a physical illness. Right, and that so often, I think, is what we connect with first because the education can be so lacking, the conversations about mental ill health can be so lacking that, of course, we focus on the physical symptoms 
and we just assume, okay, well, yes, we must be dying. The anxiety is already telling you you are. So, mm. of course, you would think yeah. that way. Yeah, so I can't swallow. It's something weird in my throat. Obviously, it's an anxiety response. Keep going to the doctor. What's wrong with my tongue? Nothing's wrong with your tongue. It doesn't make sense. Well, what is it then? You know, and it gets into these vicious cycles. And it wasn't until um, I turned up at the A&E once thinking I was dying. And I used to do this a lot. Like the ambulance sort of knew me. I'd call them out three, four, five times a week. And someone in the A&E said, you know what? You don't have to ring us every time this happens. I don't, I don't think there's anything going on physically that you think. I think there's more to it than this. I think there could be a psychological element. And it took literally like probably, what, 100 turnings up at A&E before someone actually said to me, hang on, maybe you're not dying. Wow. Which is crazy. And isn't that just like the pinnacle of the health binary, right? That particularly in yeah. an environment of like A&E, you can understand it. They're there to see, is this person dying or not? That is the like the yeah. sharp end of their job. And yet yeah. the vast majority of healthcare is is not that. And clearly there was something recurring going on for you. Yeah. And I turn up, I say, you know, I've had a life-threatening allergy before. I'm struggling to swallow. I'm struggling to breathe. Obviously, anxiety response. They'd give me a load of allergy medicine and keep me in overnight because they didn't know, you know, so they treat it like an allergy. Yeah. But then the context of this happening so often, I'm glad that somebody finally twigged there was a bit more to it. Yeah. It took them long enough, though. Mm -hmm. And so... In terms of these these fears that you built up, how is your behaviour changing? Because you're not getting answers from medical professionals. So did you find you're then like policing your own behaviour to try and feel safer? Yeah. yeah, in lots of ways. So I got really good at pretending I was fine all the time. Like no one would know. I became like an expert at disguising it. But inside I was really clumsy. Like I was always dropping things, really kind of awkward and... I developed like these really strange behaviours, like I would grab things and like grab my collarbone or if I was walking through the street, I used to like have to touch every lamp, it sounds really weird, but touch every lamppost to know there was something solid there that I was still alive. And it kind of got quite sort of ingrained. And I would never really, I'd always find excuses not to eat out, not to eat food, because obviously it could kill me. So there was this eating disorder side to it as well. You know, and, and and just kind of really complicated, convoluted ways to avoid things is, is all I can say, really. And then these other coping yeah. mechanisms, which were totally healthy, like drawing and painting and expressing myself creatively as well. So it wasn't all completely bleak. Mm. But I can certainly see how so many of the unhealthy ones would form because you wanted to do something, you were desperately searching for something to make you feel safer. And so almost a more convoluted process may feel like, okay, well, if I'm putting in all this effort, maybe it'll work. Yeah, definitely. And it's really funny, like, finally, I, I got to see a decent psychologist after years. And I remember going into his office and emptying out my bag And I had like some sort of syringe thing that would extract a beast thing, three adrenaline pens, all these different pills. It it was so heavy. And he was like, you're prepared for the apocalypse. Like, what are you carrying this round for? And it was just bonkers. (laughs) And I just saw it from the other side. And I was like, wow, I literally could treat a scorpion sting. (laughs) <laughs> in the middle of Bournemouth <laughs> and then at that point the big threat is like how's your back going to cope with that then you're making new problems I know. and so in terms of that that when you did get support what was identified and what kind of support did you get well actually it was a bit rubbish so initially I mean they sent me to this this group and it was called a coping with fear group and about eight people sat around and everyone had different things, you know, and, and different levels of things. So some people were scared of cats and some people were scared of spiders. And I was kind of scared of life in general, I suppose. And I remember everyone sat around and then they, they made me drink a glass of water in front of everybody. And it really just freaked me out and I could never go back. And I was like, I'm scared to put anything in my mouth and you're making me drink a glass of water. So I, I kind of quit that because it really set me off for weeks and I sort of held out. And then there was this weird thing. I saw this like NHS charter that said I was entitled to the best available care. 
And I went to my GP and I said, like, I'm entitled to the best available care and I want the best psychologist you've got and I'm willing to wait. And I just held out for that. And then eventually I saw this dude and a few sessions with him really helped me massively. Like, it transformed my whole life. He, he actually explained what was going on and gave me a perspective that I just didn't have. It's just like he just opened my eyes to a different way of looking at myself and my experience. Mm-hmm. It was huge, absolutely huge for me. Yeah, that's brilliant to hear. And I just want to touch on something there about, you'd mentioned earlier about thinking that part of why it wasn't taken seriously, the the near-death experience that you'd had in terms of just sending you essentially back out into the world then with no aftercare was because of you being a young bloke. And what you described in that support group sounds a little bit like your issues around eating weren't taken seriously there and I wonder if there's there's a bit of a link where they maybe thought okay this is a phobia as opposed to you have an eating disorder. Yeah they were definitely treating it like it was a phobia like there's a lady who's scared of spiders and one that's scared of cats and I was like this isn't right you know it's not as I said to you before it wasn't an irrational fear I could actually die like it was perfectly valid for me to say well who's touched this glass I mean look at it with Covid now I mean it's like that for me every day has someone sneezed on it has someone touched it you know it's not completely irrational but they weren't dealing with that and you know it wasn't the right place to explore what I was going through. And do you think part of it was that maybe you didn't fit the sort of stereotypical profile of what even medical professionals can sometimes think of somebody who has anxiety or somebody who has an eating disorder? Yeah, I think so. But I think also in those days, I think even the GPs were so less clued up than they are now. I mean, you know, this is 20 years ago or whatever. These these GPs then, they just kind of referred you to whatever, you know, they just ticked a box. I think now, actually the GP I've got now is really, really gets it. You know, we have great conversations about it. It's really switched on. But it wasn't like that then. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you have that now. And so in leading up to getting this proper support that did really help you, you mentioned that you were also working on your art and it sounds like that yes. had become a brilliant outlet. Yeah, I mean, art was everything. You know, I could say things I couldn't say with words because I didn't understand what was going on, you know. But art's an amazing way to express emotion. You know, it does things that science can't or commerce can't you know art can deal with emotions what it feels to be here what it is to be human so when you start expressing yourself through drawing or poetry it gave me another perspective on what was going on internally even if I didn't quite understand it it got it out and it was deeply therapeutic and then to be able to share those things on the internet with other people sort of was this kind of therapy you know it, it really helped and at that point when you first started selling work online what was the the work like? You said you were doing three pieces a day? Yeah, so they were just, they were works on paper, so kind of like drawings, but very sort of teen angsty kind of, this is what I, you know, kind of punky, but I was putting them on eBay because that was the only place you could upload an image because there was no like MySpace or Facebook or it's certainly no Instagram. So I'd put them every day on eBay and other people got them and they could resonate with like what I was going through. And I didn't feel so alone. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it really helped me. And it gave me something to keep going for, you know, my art. There was nothing else in my life, really. And I just woke up every day looking forward to making art. That's so lovely. And it's such a a simple way of coping there that can get overlooked. And I think particularly the pandemic has been a reminder for a lot of artists of how this important work that really captures so much of the soul of who we are as people and as collective humanity can be still seen as too dispensable, you know, Mm. and not get the proper funding and support in a time Mm. when we've needed art more than ever to escape the, the horror of what we've been going through. Yeah, I mean, it's vital. It's what we are. I mean, otherwise we're monkeys. The difference between us and monkeys is we make art. Really, you know, Mm -hmm. so no, it's fundamental. I think everybody, you know, not even just in a a sort of mental health capacity, but I think every human being has a self that needs to be expressed, has a truth that they need to externalise somehow. 
you know, and that might be through inventing things or dancing or writing or whatever. But, you know, I think that, I think a creative expression or creative outlet is, is, is vitally important to every human being, you know, whether you call yourself an artist or a craftsman, whatever it is, I think it's fundamentally as important as brushing your teeth or eating, you know. Yeah, and I think we seek that connection so much. And so what what did you hear from the people that were buying the art? What kind of communication was there about how they were connecting with that? I don't know. I mean, I think just the fact that they wanted to buy it, you know, said that I wasn't the only one who who got it and that it meant something to somebody else. And it sort of, like, validated what I was experiencing, you know, like what I was experiencing had some sort of value outside myself to someone else. Someone else. Yeah, no, I mean, that's so true. I guess I'd never quite thought of it like that. But, of course, you know, you're literally putting a, a price tag on the experiences you've had and people are prepared to pay for, for a piece of something that they've connected with. And so was there then like a natural next step you found? The sad thing was that my art career took off. So I I got thrown into this kind of quite excessive kind of art world in London, you know, expensive yeah. paintings and art dealers and gala dinners and celebrities and this sort of thing. And the art that sort of saved me became this sort of privatised commercial thing that I couldn't lean on for my healing in the same way. So it kind of became my day job, not the thing that kept me going. So I kind of lost my art. And then I went through, I don't know, five, six years, which were really dark times because I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And that that was really bad. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And particularly when you'd base so much of your your sense of self, your sense of outlet into the world and even your reason to get up in the morning around that. Yeah. For it to then yeah. be no, other people are expecting me to do this for financial reasons isn't the same motivator. Yeah. They literally ring you up and say, well, that last one you did was really popular. I could have sold 20 of those. Can you do some more? And it's like, no. I mean, yes, but no. Really mm-hmm. tough, really hard. Yeah, and something that I am always really fearful of as a creative person myself is feeling like my my work and then by extension myself can become commoditized and that sounds kind of like what you're describing there yeah it's quite strange because especially when it's so that deeply personal and emotive it's a different kind of thing it wasn't pretty pictures of something it was literally how I felt this is the bowels of my soul you know whatever it sounds mm-hmm. a bit a bit ridiculous but it was it was that sort of thing no I, I absolutely get that and so how were you able to navigate that at the time or was it gritting your teeth well, and I, finding ways to get through it? I actually just walked away from it one day. I, I left London. I moved back to the beach, back to Bournemouth. I deleted a load of phone numbers from my phone. Wow. <laughs> How much yeah. did they try and chase you down? Quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a testament to you at least. Yeah, no, it's nice to be wanted I suppose but the art was more important to me so I think it's been about five years since I've sort of done a new painting show but I paint every day. Brilliant and what was it like then coming into doing work for yourself again did that feel weird after so much of focusing on other people's commissions and ambitions? Yeah it was like I had to sort of find my voice again yeah it was really awkward it was like if you haven't seen a friend for a long time and you've both changed quite a lot, and you're kind of trying to find some common ground. Like, yeah, it's a bit like that. Mm-hmm. And so, what sort of time scale was uh, getting to see that? Was it a psychotherapist you got to see? Um, yeah, yeah, that was just before I moved to London. So that's before it all went crazy oh, in terms wow. of my career. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I was actually feeling a lot better. Uh, I had my art, I had a new perspective on things. I was making these paintings that I liked. And then before I knew it, you know, they became popular and it all sort of went mad. And and, and of all the cities, London can have a particular way of sort of chewing you up, I think, as a creative person. I think so. But the other thing is it, it was the loneliest I'd ever been. I, I moved to London. I ended up in this huge warehouse in East London. I didn't know anybody except a couple of art dealers, really. I've never felt so lonely in my life. I 
found myself like <laughs> having having conversations with like the lady at the checkout or someone at a bus stop I became like that old person that just like talks to strangers but you know I'd regularly go two three weeks without talking to another sort of human being when I first moved to London that was very weird and, and again I didn't really have the art to lean on because the art had all been earmarked for shows or people on waiting lists or whatever it was all a bit strange yeah, and sort of strangely, like very externalising, it sounds like, that it was almost being kind of like ripped away from you as fast as you could make it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Quite often it would leave whack, you know. Yeah, it wouldn't even be dry, you know. And so then by contrast, you you move back, you get to cut ties with a lot of those pressures. And so what's it been like since then? Oh, it's just been amazing. I mean, I sort of live for my art again you know I get up I think about what I want to make and I make it and the art you know the art like you know it sounds really sort of weird but it did save me the several times you know and it's kind of odd it feels like I owe it a bit of a debt so I go in there and I do my sort of service to it and go through with it and it feels good. Hmm. No I get that and I used to Part of my background is I used to be a Samaritans volunteer. And one of the Mm. things that I learned from that process is that everyone has their different reasons to live for. And it could be something that seems completely inaccessible to your way of thinking. Like for some people, their plant might be the thing that that keeps them alive on a particular day when they're really struggling. That, oh, well, who's going to water the plant? And actually, that's so wonderful because the true depth is when somebody no longer knows what what to cling on for. And, uh, you know, so I've learned that it should be so celebrated wherever people find their purpose. And particularly when, like yourself, you get to share your your work and your a part of yourself, really, with the public must be so rewarding. Yeah, it is. But, you know, it's it's like you say there, when I was in the hospital and I did have the near death, I, this sounds so corny, but it's actually true. Like, when you're dying, it's it's weird. It's really weird. But I was like, if I live, I'm just going to make art every day. Like, that's the thought. That's, mm-hmm. it sounds stupid, but I just latched onto that. I'm going to make art. I'm going to make art. I'm going to make art. And then the next day I made art. And it was just like, you know, water the plant. I'm going to walk. I've got a dog to walk. You know, it's just that one thing. And I think it pulled me through. I do. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. And I think it's actually quite a common experience people have around grief as well, which might be part of where that came from, from you, this this idea of like the bargaining stage of grief. And so I've heard people express that before, that when they feel like death is close, there's this sort of negotiation that can go on that we're almost automated in of, okay, if I get to live, this is what I'm going to do. This is how yeah, I'm yeah, going to make it Yeah, that's what it was sense. like. Yeah, it's really weird. There's, there's a Kate Bush song and she says, if I could, I'd make a deal with God and I'd yeah. ask him to change, play that song. I used to listen to it on repeat all the time. And I was like, that's what it felt like. Like I was making a deal. If you keep me alive, I'm going to paint pictures. It yeah. was so weird. No, but I, I totally right. get it because it's a, it's a clarity that we can have under extreme threat. It's the strangest thing. Yeah. And I've, I've heard Weird. similar experiences from people around suicide where they've, they've had very profound experiences when they've kind of turned the corner and, and realised there is hope. Wow. And it's something wow. that is so difficult to articulate unless you've gone through that experience that actually it could in getting back from it, make you a more hopeful person. But mm. I think certainly with my own mental health, that has been the experience. Going to certain depths has given me a, a sort of hopefulness and a perspective of, okay, that's how bad things can go. Now that I've hit that rock bottom, the way that I see the world is in partly comparison to that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I didn't realise it was, you know, others had sort of had that but yeah it's strange isn't it like when you're really at that point the what your brain does is quite amazing like I'm not religious but I prayed and that's strange you know mm-hmm. and and again there was this sort of deal going on about life and death and what I was going to do with my life and and you made it you made it come true so the well, deal worked somehow. if we were to see it that way 
Well, I know, and then it fulfills it. I think you're like, okay, well, I did make that deal. And, and actually, for quite a few years, I was trying to keep my end of the bargain. Like, I was making those three pictures a day, and I was like, I'm keeping my end of the deal. You keep me alive. I'll do this, you know. And that kind of faded out. Like, it is a bit superstitious. I don't still believe that. <laughs> Certainly in the height of it, for a good good while, it was something like that. Yeah, well, there can be that sort of raw fear that even if it's not logical, it can still be such a driver to us. And I think that's growth for a lot of people in their mental health when they realise they no longer need to feel the level of emotion that they used to. And that's a really difficult thing to articulate because when you're really in mental illness, the idea that there'll come a point where one day it'll feel easier can seem so inaccessible yeah I'd have never believed that if someone had said to me oh you know one day I wouldn't feel like this I'd be like, how <laughs> no way can't impossible yeah sit down let me explain again <laughs> you didn't hear me clearly yeah yeah no way and so now you continue to produce incredible work and put so much of yourself into it. Do you mind sharing a little bit more about your current projects and in particular the work that you do to make art materials accessible? Yeah, no, well, I do lots of things, but I mean, I, I do make art materials and I've always made my own paints since I was a very small child because I, I love colour and I love paint and we couldn't really afford good paints when I was a kid, so I had to make my own. So I've always made my own paints and I started sharing them I made the world's pinkest pink and the world's blackest black and now the brightest white in the world and several other things. But the reason why I share them is a little bit different because I think that with more exciting materials, people will uh, want to express themselves more. So I want to encourage self-expression through exciting colours and exciting paints. So I want to make the best paints in the world and I want to share them with other artists, well, other humans really, so that's what I've been doing on, on the website and a lot of people are using them and they're making amazing things. So I've been doing that and then obviously making my own work, public art projects. And we just opened quite a big gallery here in Bournemouth and we opened it in the summer and we've had some great exhibitions. It's free to come and people seem to like it. So, yeah, just kind of putting art where I think it should be, which is a bit more central to life. I think it's powerful I think it can really help people so I'm one of these weird artists that believe art is actually useful has some sort of utility can actually do something so I'm always trying to sort of prove that point in some weird way and I'm reminded of something you talked about on the therapy lab podcast actually you were talking about how art can be so therapeutic in its raw form which is a perspective I'd I'd not really heard expressed before where so often when we talk about art within mental health, it's specifically art therapy, which is, you know, it's particular modality and it's usually people that are trained both as artists and as therapists and they really try and bring those worlds together. But one of the things you really expressed with Sherry was how much you find just creating in any form can be so therapeutic with people, even without that kind of purposeful therapeutic framework? Yeah, I think so. I've seen that a lot. I mean, art therapy is brilliant. It's definitely a place for it. And there are some brilliant art therapists. And I'm not saying that that's not valuable. But what I do think is when you actually express yourself in whatever form feels right to you, you start to open something up. And once that's opened up, it remains open. And that's my experience. So if someone starts writing poetry, it's a little glimmer, but it's there for them forever. Uh, yeah, I think I think there's just an honesty in that. And it's deeply healing. And it's something we've all got available all the time. Absolutely. And I think that's why I love that sentiment and appreciate it so much, because absolutely, I agree. You know, art therapy, like all kinds of therapy, can have incredible benefits for people but there is also something so brilliant about being able to, to access those benefits beyond those environments as well you know tap into that in the same way you know people learn how to meditate a part of that is also being able to meditate without whoever taught them you know and so I think there's something about what you're saying there of this outlet to express yourself organically authentically and with a way that is 
self-driven, you know, much like you've done with your art of, okay, today, what am I doing? I think is is so empowering. Well, it's deeply empowering, right? Because it's self-autonomy. I mean, you are doing it for yourself with what you have. And I do think a big part of it is, you know, if if you put the burden of your healing on the hands of another you know, there's brilliant experts. And as I said, I mean, the, the therapist I saw really cracked it for me. So I'm not knocking that. But there's a point where the deeper levels of healing, they, it comes from inside you when you get to know yourself and you get to meet yourself, not through the eyes of someone else, but you meet yourself. And creativity enables you to do that, your own mm-hmm. self-expression. Yeah. And I really love the way that you work to bring that to so many people, you know, with the materials that you make, with the art that I'm sure inspires so many other people to create their own work. And, you know, the whole philosophy you have about that being accessible. Well, it should be for everyone. And and I think the big problem is people are caught up in the idea of, is it good? Is it bad? Am I good at it? Or am I bad at it? Am I an amateur? Am I a professional? I'm fed up with it. She's a good artist. He's a good artist. He's clever. She's not. It's good. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you do it at all. Doing it is the thing. So much if it's any good, do it, screw it up, put it in the bin. It's finished. Yeah. And one last thing I'll, I'll ask you about in terms of the art world then. How do you feel at this point about art as something that is still very much a commodity and something that is still very much seen as owned because I know certainly when it comes to owning a particular paint colour you have opinions on that <laughs> yeah I think look ownership's a funny thing I mean as I said before it's beautiful when somebody resonates with something you've made enough to want to own it and bring it into their life and live with it and I think that's a really beautiful thing art is owned because there's nothing quite like it it's the apex of what human beings do it is a piece of humanity right and there's nothing like it you know, it will always trump money. Art will always be more valuable than money will ever be because it will outlive money. So that's never going to end. But in terms of the paint colour, you know, we're talking about Anish Kapoor's exclusive ownership of the blackest black. And, you know, that's not owning a piece of art. That's using your wealth and your power to dominate a material and exclude other people from using it. That's selfishness. That's greediness. That's exclusivity. That's elitism. That's wrong. If one person wants to buy a beautiful Van Gogh painting and lend it to a museum so everyone can enjoy it forever and it's going to be looked after, that's a completely different thing. (laughs) People who own art tend to want to look after it and preserve it for the future, so we need people to do that. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important distinction of using your power and influence in order to make it more accessible rather than to to hoard creativity. Because I also don't think that's the most enjoyable way of interacting with art anyway. You know, I, no. I think I would always rather own a gallery than own an exhibition of art just in my home. Yeah, and we see the really big collectors now buying art and building beautiful museums that are open to the public to house their collections. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And so I totally agree. So we will wrap up there. I'm glad that I got a chance to, to ask you about some of your thoughts on the art world. And so yes. if people are connecting with your story, if they're feeling hopefully creative, listening to, to some of your words, where should they find you and your work? Well, I'm Stuart Semple on Instagram and my website, stuartsemple.com. That's probably the best place. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That's right. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's been brilliant. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday and remember, you are enough.